on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, health care freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgiatos And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. If you watch the show all the time, you're thinking, this doesn't look usual. You're right, it is not. We are in our Austin studio. I'm very grateful Real News PR has a lovely studio in Austin. In just about one minute, I'm gonna show you the background, pretty darn cool. But I wanna tell you at the start of the show that the reason I'm doing the show remotely today is because I've been traveling, t working on this campaign. I know I've talked with you a little bit about it, but I'm running for Republican National Committee woman from Texas. We are starting to travel all over creation. It could not be more fun. Last night had a fabulous, fabulous event in Houston. Uh, lots of energy out there and a lot of expectation among voters that the Republican National Committee needs to be a more bold voice on behalf of the conservatives in Texas. And that's what I'm running to do. So that's why we're traveling. Oh yeah, there you go. There is my happy uh, website, DebbieGForRNC.com. Uh, thank you to the listeners have already endorsed. Uh, I have a few exciting new endorsements to tell you about in just a moment, but the campaign is going great. And this is why we're doing the studio here in Austin. And I also have a great guest joining me. I'll introduce him in just about 30 seconds, but I want to give you a couple of quick thank yous. First, thank you, Real News PR, for having a studio down here for Ziggy Becker, who used to be my producer in Dallas, now is down here producing the show today. And Emilio, who's always wonderful, my producer in Dallas, I want to thank him. Also want to thank, uh, the show is carried on Brighteon TV, and I tell them, I will say it every show, Brighteon TV, B-R-I-G-H-T-E-O-N.TV. They carry many serious substantive conservative talk shows. I encourage you to go to their website. You can find all sorts of people you've heard speak in many, many places, people who don't have a platform on uh, kind of more broad national media, but they're very serious substantive thinkers. I want to thank them for carrying this show very, very much. I also want to thank the woman who sang that song, my, my just my theme music, I Am America. That music. In fact, I encourage you to look up the words online. Just look up I'm America by Krista Branch. She sings it. Her husband writes the lyrics uh, and he writes the words and they are exactly what this show is about. I am America. The people who are going to shape America's future are the ones who stand up and speak up and engage in the political system in America and speak up for the, the in, in my case, America's founding values. So that is America Can We Talk for today, but um, my little intro, one last thing to tell you. If you're listening on iTunes or some other place where you can't see, you can always go to my website, americacanwetalk.org. americacanwetalk.org. I have blogs and, and all of our Why It Matters feature has become very popular. Um, past interviews of all kinds, you can go there and just uh, be immersed in what I think about pretty much everything. You know, in this campaign for RNC Committee Woman for Texas, often I tell people in audiences, you know, I, I really can't change my views on anything or fake you out because everything I think is already out there uh, on this show and I'm proud of how I think about standing up and preserving America. 
So with that, I'll introduce our guest for today. Normally in Dallas, on our Thursday shows, we have an in-studio audience. They're there for the whole hour, and they normally have, unless I get going too long, they have an opportunity to ask questions themselves of the guests. We don't have that today. We have a full hour show, but not the in-studio audience. So I'd like to welcome to the show Chuck DeVore. He's joined me on the show in the past. He is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is very close by. In fact, I believe he walked here to this studio from his office. But his title, if I say it correctly, is Chief National Initiatives Officer at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. They are the premier state-based think tank in the country, and they are just a, a fabulous resource for many, many topics and issues. Chuck DeVore is an official there, has been there quite a while. Well, I'll ask him in a moment when he first started there. But by way of quickest background, introduce him. He came from the uh, West Coast. He was formerly served in the legislature in California. He is a military veteran. He served as an intelligence officer, retired as lieutenant colonel. So he's got military experience, um, and he's just a, a fount of knowledge on many topics, which I have been reading about. So we're going to be talking about TPPF, talking about a book that's increasingly getting attention today, and also a lot of what he's been writing about China, of all things. So I want to turn to all those topics, and welcome to the show, Chuck DeVore. Great to be with you. <laughs> nice wow. to see you, sir. And all that introduction is just like off the top of your head. I was very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. You know, I have someone on the show who's like, who is saying, Where, where's the teleprompter? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I just rolled. I will tell you also, since you mentioned that, I normally have a stack of papers and I have it neatly organized by topic while we're traveling and I realize I, I don't have any way oh to print papers. Goodness. So yeah. I'm just rolling today. So it could get fun. Th this is all natural then. This is, yeah. Yes, right. sir. That's great. <laughs> yes, sir. So I want to start with, I would love you to tell a little bit more about Texas Public Policy Foundation. I've had experts from your organization mm -hmm. definitely on climate change. Jason Isaac was awesome on this show. Right. He actually spoke at one of my my Women for Freedom summits. He was brilliant. People loved him. So just basically TPPF and what you do there. Yeah, so we are, as you mentioned, we're America's largest right of center state-based think tank. Some people may be familiar with our recent former president, Kevin Roberts, who went on to lead the Heritage Foundation. Yes, he did. Uh, so uh, about 100 people. When I joined officially in April of 2012, we had about 30. So we've had a lot of growth since then. In fact, I'm responsible for overseeing about 35 people, which is more than the entire foundation had when I started yeah, yeah. in April of 2012. Now, they, the foundation actually contracted with me to write a book for them in August of 2011, and that was the book called The Texas Model. Uh, and so I was just a contractor. I did most of the work when I was out in California. And that book, completing that book, was actually a huge part of my due diligence in moving my family from California out to Texas, because I looked at all of the negative things people were saying about Texas, all of Texas's critics, people like Paul Krugman of the New York Times that were saying- What does he know? Well, Sorry, go ahead. Right, right, just a <laughs> Nobel Prize winning economist who, who you know, may have been partially right a long time ago and has been wrong ever since. So he was saying, of course, it was all just the dumb luck of being situated on this vast pool of oil and gas. Yeah. Had nothing to do with regulations, nothing to do with taxes, nothing to do with lawsuit reform. It was just the dumb luck of oil and gas. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and of course, if you then begin to look into the history of that, you see that the Texas's share of gross domestic product derived from oil and gas or even oil and gas finished products has been diminishing constantly over the years. We have a very diversified economy in Texas. So anyway, completing that book was the final bit of information that I needed to do to have the confidence to move the entire family 
from Southern California to the Hill Country just outside of Austin. Love that, love that you did that. And I'll add something to that because we, I think you know, are not native Texans. Don't tell anybody. No, I didn't grow up in, yeah. <laughs> but you know, I grew up in upstate New York and my husband in very rural California. And we got to Texas and we both have that same feeling. I came home. Right, right. And it's not just everything you just said. There's something about the spirit of the can-do, upbeat, right. we can take care of it, we can figure this out. Uh, I don't know, attitude, cultural, right. just, just the, the assumption about, of course we're self-sufficient, of course we can take care of ourselves. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I love that about um, Texas, and we uh, really, we, as I say, we felt years ago when we came home. Um, so I do want to talk about your book, Crisis of the House Never United, but before we get into that, because that's going to, I want to run through a lot of things, I want to just, I didn't know until we start, I started preparing for this about your writing on the subject of China. Right. Mm. And on the subject of China, the reason I'm, I've had on my show um, many national security experts, right. like Gordon Chang, on and on talking sure. about China. And I will say, it's a weird thing. We were talking about in the car, my husband, we're coming up here. On the one hand, China is painted by many as pretty darn scary. I mean, they, they have an agenda that's undeniable. They right. have that 1998 book the two generals wrote about. Right, Unrestricted Warfare. Yeah. Yes, Unrestricted I Warfare. Yeah, me too. And the, the goal or the gist of it is they believe China can take down America without firing a shot right. by destroying all sorts of things. So they have this ominous feel. On the other hand, which you're alluding to in one of your columns, there's a there, there's a, a potentially hidden weakness there oh, or they're, yeah. they're blustering but they're kind of weak and some things are happening behind the scenes. So I didn't know until I read your column and I actually have them organized here on my iPad so I can get to them quickly. In your column about China, um, you were talking about some things that you called it, is China weak or just pretending? Right. Just talk about, if you would, these mysterious signals coming out of China and what we ought to think about that. Right, so there, uh, Xi Jinping has been using this kind of drive against corruption and a lot of people, because of the, the skepticism of how these one-party communist states work, think, you know, they're all corrupt. You know, it's, it's like, uh, show me the man and I'll show you the crime, right? Yes. Uh, Laventi Beria, the, the infamous Soviet-era uh, secret police chief, uh, once said that. Yeah. And so everyone uh, is guilty of some form of corruption in the Chinese system. So then the question is, is uh, the paramount leader Xi is is essentially accusing these individuals of corruption and re, you know removing them from power? You look at it and you think, okay, so how much of this is legitimate? In other words, how much of these people really did were were far more corrupt than the average official? How many of them are simply running afoul of Xi Jinping and yeah. don't agree with his with what he wants to do? Yeah. And how many of them have actually been purged? rather than you know more like a show like removing the person in show but maybe not in reality keeping him in place in some right. and we way. don't know because it's such an opaque system we don't know it's not america it's not where they have congress that has hearings and an independent judiciary or anything like that this is an opaque society they show us what they want to show us and that was part of the theme of of that most recent article yeah, you know, they actually, you had a lot of things in here about China, which I, I, I do follow China kind of closely because, you know, for a long time there was the assumption among the kind of intellectual elite, uh, and this is, I'm talking decades ago, that if we just reached out to right. China and we did trade, right. we, they would soften on communism, they'd become more like us. Mm. And so we, 
we yeah, play that worked along. out well. Right, right yeah. and not, not so well. <laughs> and, and so then we start realizing we better be serious about right. them. A lot of concern about trade, how they steal and steal secrets, they steal copyrights, they copy us, and a lot of pressure on, on people in, in government to say stop letting them do that. But they're this enigma, because on the one hand, or at least I, I feel deeply sorry for the people who live there, the citizens. It's not their fault they have a communist government. It's not their fault that they have a restricted society. So I want to help them. But on the other hand, how sinister is their government really? And so right now, the big issue is whether or not they're actually going to go in uh, and take Taiwan. Do you have a thought about that? Yeah, so first of all, they are sinister. They're, they're even more sinister than you can imagine because your Western mind is not capable of thinking the way they do. It's part of what's called the mirror imaging fallacy where you ascribe motives to the other side that are based in your own cultural rubric, right? That's a big mistake. Uh, yeah. So uh, when, for example, just in the last few days, it's come out that the Chinese have been working on a virus with humanized mm -hmm. mice that uh, goes after not the lungs, but the brain and has oh, a 100% fatality uh, uh, percentage with these humanized mice. Uh, and so you look at that and you think, what possible legitimate reason could they ever have to work on that sort of gain of function, Frankenstein's monster research, other than to be engaging in illegal biological weapons research? So okay. that's the sort of thing that makes you think, these people are serious about preparing for world domination on their terms. Absolutely. This uh, production of this virus you're describing that the, with the mice, this is happening in China? Yes. In, okay. So on that subject of, of what happens inside China, part of what happens is we don't know what's happening right. inside China. We, we, you know, we, even when COVID broke out in the Wuhan, we had to play along pretending it was somehow, you know, that it was it came, came from some natural... Right, the know, wet market. The wet market. Yes. Yeah, the term, wet market. Yes. And then finally... There was a that, pangolin in the wet market. Oh, yeah, yeah, who right. knew? Yeah. And, and as it turns out, we've learned now what really wasn't all. It was a cultivation of weapons. And this is why this whole, uh, to my view, this, this um, and any kind of failure to be as harsh as we can against China, it, it, we hurt ourselves uh, if we don't send mess right. messages of very, very serious... Um, um, it just we would like we'd like actually to be the dominant one over them. And to that point, before I um, forget to mention, there was that meeting of the China I, the name of the, the official party um, structure met, and it was only in the last ten years or something. And they talked very openly. In fact, I, I ended up printing out the report that was given very openly about the idea that they intend to actually be. Intent, not just what the generals wrote about in 1998, but even now today is the party plan. But it's supposed to be by 2040 was right. the idea. They're going to be the dominant ones. Right. I don't know if there's any other country in the world that has that mindset right now. Maybe there are. But that, that concept by itself right. ought to cause us to be very, very on guard. In fact, aggressive right. toward them. To yeah, if they can. say something, you should believe it in that case, right? I mean, if they, if they say openly that their plan is domination of the world on their terms, then you should believe that that's what their intentions are and act accordingly. And I think, unfortunately, there's so much money to be made in China uh, that you still have um, you know, the, the, the captains of industry here in America that are influencing politicians. You have, of course, the folks in the State Department that are kind of wed to a, a status quo 
uh, you know, they, they always like to, to, to work with their opposites and give them their due and, uh, you know, you're, you're my opposite equal across the table. Yes. Uh, and, and that gives the, the people in the State Department a certain amount of prestige, right? Uh, sometimes you have to just look and say, no, you can't deal with certain people if the whole premise is to overthrow you, your way of life, and to dominate you. Yeah, it's the Kissinger mindset that he tried to introduce um, a long time ago, the whole mindset we can keep talking with them and, and we're somehow going to well, arrive at and, some... And to some degree, though, that made sense then during the Cold War because we aligned with China against the Soviet Union. He did tell Nixon, and everyone forgets this, he said, Nixon said to Nixon, uh, Kissinger said to Nixon, in 20 years' time, uh, your successor, if they're as smart as you, will probably have to balance with Russia against China. Now, think about that. In 20 years' time, that would have been around 1995, yeah. which was just around the time that Clinton was essentially rolling out the red carpet to China. We had World Trade Organization. We had most favored nation trading status. Everyone seems to forget that, that Kissinger predicted that at some point in time, we'd have to play the balance of power card and shift over to Russia to balance against China. Yeah, I want to talk about one other aspect about China. You know, we talk about trade policy, they're militarily aggressive, at least they're threatening they're going to be militarily aggressive against Taiwan. But the other thing, and it kind of ties back to those generals that wrote about unrestricted warfare, the invasion of America's culture by Chinese or communist ideology. Right. And we had, um, I, you know, I have a vague recollection, I talked with you about this one time before, about how in America, many universities set up a Confucius Institute. Right, right. And so this was by, by the, you know, kind of the bright view of the world. We're here to understand each other, build bridges of understanding, right. we'll teach you about us, you learn about. And, and at the time, what it really it, we came to understand, these were just influence operations in universities trying to uh, soften the perception of communism, right. soften the threat that China posed, and we embraced that in our country in, in major universities. And there it was, was free money. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So there were three purposes of these Confucius Institutes, which thankfully have been largely shut down around yeah. the country. Uh, there are other entities that have kind of sprung up to, to to be in their place. But the three things that they did was the first thing that you just mentioned, right? To, to present a sanitized view of China and the Chinese Communist Party. But there are two other things they did that were very important. Thing number two, keep an eye on the Chinese students at those schools yeah. and to intimidate them into towing the proper Chinese Communist Party line and to remind them that they had parents and relatives back in China and if they didn't behave, things could go badly for them. The, the third uh, thing that they would do is steal our intellectual property. So a lot of these Confucius Institutes were uh, purposefully put in research institutions, research universities that were receiving huge amounts of federal money for basic scientific research. And they would try very hard, and the universities wouldn't exactly resist, to get Chinese national PhD students or, or PhD, uh, you know, people who already have their PhDs, on these programs paid for in many cases by Defense Department dollars so that they could learn about our emerging technologies and not have to pay for that research themselves. And I will just say one last thing before I pivot to our next topic, but there was a, a, a cultural thing that caused many people who would point out the kind of things you were just saying, point out the danger of China 
the cultural invasion, and you were silenced or mocked and criticized for saying that. Well, you're you're just you're just racist. Right. You exactly. Know, you know, you're xenophobic. You only love America. You can't understand all these other cultures. Yeah, when yeah. really, to be wide awake to defending America required truth about what they were doing. Oh, absolutely. No, yeah. it, was, it was done purposefully. Absolutely. And I love when people started speaking up about it. And when they did, of course, you got some of the pushback saying, you know, well, you just, you know, kind of a, you're just, you're bigoted and that wasn't right at all. So I love that you write about that. And I, I love talking about China a lot because I think it's one of those things that you don't really hear much about in the mainstream media in terms of the real agenda. You don't really, kids in universities don't really uh, learn much about um, until people and, and conservatives speak up. Hey, I forgot one thing I promised to do before we started, which was we're in the studio in Austin and Ziggy, the happy producer, is going to show you what is behind us. That would be the Texas Capitol, our beautiful, we do have, I'm just saying, a beautiful Capitol in Texas. I mean, it is stunning inside and out. So that's our happy Texas Capitol. Just seeing, this is, Austin's quite a lovely area to be in. Okay, so uh, on my other topics I had with you, um, because I, and I want to get to your book, but I know once we get there, we'll never get away. <laughs> so I want to hit one other thing you wrote about, and I want to talk about election integrity. Okay, and that's one of the arenas where you particularly focus at TPPF, yes. right? Yeah. Okay, so before I launch into these, I learned some things from your article. This is another one of my topics. I, I always say the two things that will take down America, in my view, are border insecurity and election integrity. If you don't defend the border and you just allow this continued invasion, you don't have America. You don't have a... a right. yeah, you Nations are defined by their borders, yes. Amen. Yeah. And the other one um, has to do with election integrity and how far we're willing to push um, to get what... I mean, to, to address the many problems related to election integrity. So um, I will start in... Uh, I, did, I, I learned something from your article about how many states have... Um, eight states have elections entirely through the mail. Yes. Okay. On that subject, and I will concede, I, I am with the Constitution... And so states get to decide how they do elections. However, having said that, I would love for activists in all these eight states, but I'll tell you what they are. California, naturally. Um, Colorado, Hawaii, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, Vermont. And, and Vermont for only general elections. And Washington, the state of Washington. So here's what has to happen. In those states, the activists who begin to understand the way in which voting by mail could be problematic need to become activists at their legislatures. It's not going to all change overnight, but I think that's a good start to push on those. But in your perfect world, if you could be in charge of every state, um, what would you do with to bring about election integrity? Well, I think that, first of all, it's important to vote in person with a photo ID that's issued by uh, the government. Um, part of the challenge is that you have states where uh, that's not at all the case. So like in California, your signature on your voter registration form is the attestment to your being eligible to vote. They don't check your citizenship status. Uh, in fact, you can even uh, register to vote online. They'll ask for your social security number, but if you don't give it to them, they will still go through and send you the voter, uh, uh, your voter uh, registration. Uh, and what they do is they'll say, well, the first time you, you show up to vote in person, because California still has a little bit of voting in person, uh, then you have to show a photo or an ID, any, any sort of ID, not photo ID. They even include things like um, a utility bill, mm -hmm. right? Because all they care about is are you voting from where you say you live, right? They want to know that you're in the right jurisdiction where you're being taxed. That's all they care about in California. Um, the challenge in pushing it back, back against mail-in voting is that people like the convenience. 
polling shows that even Republicans, at least until recently, like voting by mail. It's convenient. The problem is most Republicans don't understand that conceptually the left thinks about voting very differently than do they. So for example, uh, I'm getting close to the age where in Texas I could legally ask to vote by mail. In Texas it's age 65 and you can ask to vote by mail for one year at a time. So if I were to register to vote by mail, right, and get that privilege, what if someone came to my doorstep and said, hey, I understand you're registered, that, that you're gonna vote by mail. I'd like to come into your kitchen and to help you vote your, your ballot, because I know it's very complicated. Well, I would tell that individual, probably in unkind terms, <laughs> to get the heck off my porch, yeah. right? Get off of my property, <clears throat> you're trespassing, right? And, and scram, okay? Well, that's because that's from my cultural experience, right? I, I come from an experience where voting is private, it's done by the individual with the franchise without any help from outsiders. The left, however, looks at things very differently. They have more of a John C. Calhoun vision of voting where you have concurrent majorities of different interest groups and that if you're a person of a certain color or if you're from a certain socioeconomic group, then you should vote a certain way. And if you don't, you're a traitor to your group. And they will then send out thousands of people to help in air quotes, to help those people vote and vote the right way. And that's why the left loves mail-in balloting because they look at balloting or voting as a group exercise done as a, a, a constituency, all done together. Everyone speaks as one voice. And if they need help from the SEIU labor union uh, yeah. who's paid to come to your doorstep and help you vote. A big burly so guy, yeah. Yeah, exactly, let me help you vote. Oh, yes, sir. Yeah, I think that's a kind description of the motive of the left. I mean, what you're saying is accurate. It's kind, because I truly do think the left views mail-in balloting as an opportunity to, to um, at the very least, help people vote. At the very most, all sorts of trouble with mail-in ballots right. about people. In fact, I'm sure you, you must have seen Dinesh D'Souza's film, 2000 oh, yeah. Mules. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, you know, I asked you uh, to start about what I think, uh, you know, the most perfect thing could be. To me, it is, it is paper ballots only, day of election, and uh, photo ID um, that's actually government issued. Um, and uh, to get the government issued, you have to have proof of citizenship. Sure. And, and the other, uh, and I would love the eventual elimination of most electronics involved in the election process. Just more of a, a very uh, reliable paper ballot thing. And I say all that because I think that over uh, the last, especially, um, I don't know what, 10 years or so, more suspicion uh, is, is, is just prevalent in the country about whether the elections are valid or are, um, earnest. I think, uh, you know, I, I will just say you don't have to agree. I think the 2020 election was stolen. I do not think, uh, I, I, I feel as sure as I'm sitting here talking to you that it was, right. and you don't have to agree, but I think it's... Well, I would I say that it was stolen fair and square, and here's why I would say that. Um, if you look at people like Mark Elias, and if you look at uh, the uh, civic and technology you know, yep. uh, fund from uh, Zuckerberg, they used COVID as an excuse to do things that they have been talking about doing for 20 years yeah. regarding helping, pe helping people with mail-in ballots, uh, doing these sue and settle lawsuits with these left-wing um, uh, urban locations. And the problem was that because of COVID, you had people within the Trump administration and in many states that were red states 
who were afraid to push back because the, the, the narrative about the deadliness of COVID was that if you make grandma vote in person in line, you're killing her. Right. right? And so people didn't push back. We saw this coming from miles away and there was very little done. We did stuff in Texas to push back. You may recall, Harris County wanted to illegally send mail-in ballots, ballot applications to the entire voting population of Harris County, which would have significantly or could have significantly changed the outcome in, in the state of Texas. And Attorney General Paxton and others, uh, Texas Public Policy Foundation was part of that, uh, uh, initiated legal action to prevent that from happening. But in other places, that was not stopped. Oh, it was a massive thing. I wanna make one distinction about absentee ballots versus mail-in. I mean, absentee, when you are a, uh, certainly if you're a military, remember a military and you're serving abroad and you, the only way you can vote right. is, is an absentee ballot is you write in and say, hey, I'm here serving right. an ex semi a ballot. Absentee is different than mail-in when they just mail out swarms of ballots. Right. And, and I know that you and others stood up in Texas and Harris County, but around the country, there were people who were going online saying, hey, I got five ballots at my house. Right. And they get multiple ballots. And then uh, obviously many, many things occurred that caused you to realize, especially I, I urge people to see 2,000 Mules if you haven't yet, uh, Dinesh D'Souza's film and with the work of Catherine Engelbrecht, True the Vote, fabulous thing, um, fabulous documentary, which uh, you can tell that was hitting a nerve because the left did all the, this is conspiracy theory, because the fact is they couldn't refute the substance that was, it, it, it was really brilliant. Um, but I also will say, well, I want to remind you, I don't know if you saw the film Kill Chain, but there was a film put out in 2019, I think, 2018, 2019. And the beauty of it was it had on the um, leftists. It had the Senator uh, Hiawatha, whatever her name is, from Massachusetts. I know her real name. But I mean, there were there were left-wing senators, members of Congress, and, and people who are candidates. The uh, Wisconsin woman who ran for um, president on the Democrat ticket. These are high-ranking Democrat officials in this film, Kill Chain Documentary, who basically said, electronic voting machines are rife with a potential for fraud. And they gave examples of, they, get, they had little dog and pony shows laying out how fraud happens. And they were all of a sudden, when 2020 happened, and they, they got their guy in, they've well, gone, right. they've gone I mean, quiet. But and, I'm telling and, you, what the, right. but, the, but the shortcomings they uncovered, when you understand NSA, and I mean, not just NSA, the, the um, DOD, federal agencies that should have the best protection possible, they've all been hacked. They've all been hacked and they tell stories, well, this turns out months and months before we knew. The answer is because computers are hackable. That's the answer to the question. And, and that's why all of these systems must have backup systems, why people need to be properly trained as volunteers to oversee both at the precinct level and at the, at the central count. Uh, there must be a redundant system that's not electronic. So at the very least, a paper receipt, if you will, a paper trail uh, that would allow, if there's any hint of a problem, to go back and, and to conduct a check. Um, that is vitally important. Uh, if you see, though, for example, the recent uh, Taiwanese election uh, with paper ballots at the presidential level, big difference between counting one choice, in other words, you have a ballot and there's one yeah. election, versus in some of these jurisdictions, you'll have dozens and dozens and dozens of things that are on the ballot. You have bonds, you have school boards, you have city council, you have you know, local uh, state legislative positions. The, the logistics and trying to do something that, like that merely by hand is going to be really difficult. Uh, and then of course the, the counterpart is, 
if you allow for multiple elections at different times, then you end up getting local jurisdictions essentially choosing their voters by yeah, having right. the low turnout election for the big bond in May, where you know two and a half percent of the voters turn out and vote, uh, of whom half were were teachers and uh, families of teachers. So, oh yeah, you know. oh I know. And so there is a conundrum, right? How do you balance what Taiwan just pulled off, where they do their their national election for president, where that's the only thing on the ballot, right? Versus some of the 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 more robust or long you know, ballots uh, in yeah. the nightmare of trying to do something like yeah. that by hand. You know, talk about weeks and weeks and weeks waiting oh, for, for results. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I still, I know it probably sounds, I'm, I'm pretty absolute about it. I agree with you that when you have city council elections and they're kind of off track, they're not the same time as the election for president. You can have president and Congress and the U.S. Senate, but then you have state elections and local elections and only the most activists show up in these smaller elections. Right. And so people, maybe either side, you know, people pushing for or against something, they right. know, now's our time, show up. So I don't mind combining them and, I, and, and take, making it take longer to count. But the return of trust in our elections, which I think has been lost, yeah. I, I, think, I think the 2020 elections, I, don't, I, I think on many levels that, that I uh, just deception think, I, occurred. I think it's important, though, from a historical standpoint to understand that merely going to paper ballots isn't enough. So, for example, Tammany Hall, which I write about in my book that we may end up discussing, okay, <laughs> <We will. laughs> is, is a great example of where they used paper ballots and controlled the state of New York for decades, in fact, close to 80 years, by uh, having people who weren't, for example, eligible to vote or simply stuffing the ballot box ahead of time. In fact, one of the innovations that they had out of Tammany Hall was uh, the, the state legislature during one of the rare times it wasn't controlled by Tammany Hall passed a, a law that said that the ballot uh, uh, had to be a big glass jar so that you could see uh, okay, that yeah. it was empty when you went when in started. at the start of the day, right? Well, that ruined all their fun. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. and all those were elections were stolen with paper ballots. So oh, you, I, you know, have to be, you know, it's. They're, they're oh, it isn't the only thing, but right. I think I think getting away from electronics where you cannot possibly see what's happening yeah, it, it's yeah. a, it is a huge thing. To me, it is. Um, it, and, and the one last thing, back to California, I want to ask you. So you're talking about people register online and you just, you verify, yes, I'm a citizen. Right. No one checks up. What is the criminal penalty attached for lying to that about that? Well, very, very few people ever uh, get hit for that. And typically what happens is if somebody is brought up on different charges that are more serious, then they'll go after them on that as well, right? And so there are very few, I, I, I've gone back and looked, I can't imagine you're talking about more than four or five people a year that they, that yeah. they, that they accuse of that, but it's perjury, right? Um, oh, it's perjury, but I, I have to say, I think the enhancement of penalties for, uh, as and I don't, I'm, I've been an election judge uh, many times, I've been a poll watcher, I've been a clerk, I understand, you know, you, spend, you stand all day uh, and it's tiring and you get paid basically nothing, uh, and you don't do it for the money anyway, and then to have severe criminal penalties threatened for allowing someone to vote who couldn't, you're going to drive away all the people who otherwise vote. But criminal penalties for the person, if you know you're not a legal citizen, if you know you sneaked over the border, and, and uh, you know, that, that kind of thing about, you know, the penalty is actually a deportation, I, I can see that. Right. I mean, you try once, you even try, you're yeah. out. I Something think that there are so many people, though, that the left, with mail, the reason why they love mail-in balloting, right, is if you look at a state, let's say there's a, a group of people and half of them regularly vote, right, they're low turnout voters. 
what mail-in balloting does is it allows you to do a full court press, right. sending people to that person's door time and time and time again until finally they give up. And whether it's for a small payment of a six pack, a $20 bill, a little bit of cocaine, whatever, or, or just the fact that they, they aren't gonna be threatened uh, with lack of access to the local food pantry as an example, yeah. right? Yeah. Then they say, fine, fine, I'll let you help me vote, right? Yep. That's what it's all about. So there are a lot of votes that are easy to get with a fair amount of labor that are far less risky than having illegal immigrants vote. I mean, we're talking a lot of people that can be gone after with potentially illegal immigrant voting, almost like the icing on the cake. Yeah, on that subject of who is pushed, because you always hear these stats, you hear them out of actually conservative activists saying what a low percentage of people who are regular church attenders vote, or I mean, people in the, who might right. normally vote on the conservative side, there's not a massive turnout like there should be. And so, and those may be on, on the right, you, the people you go after, but the concept of saying, right. if you get a mail, I mean, I don't even like mail-in ballots, I only like absentee, but if you're gonna do mail-in right. ballots, the concept of being coercive or, or anyone being paid, I think one state had a, had a, you can't pick up more than two mail-in ballots, you can't be like on Dinesh D'Souza's film and show up with a stack that's big you, know, you get to bring two only and and you can't be paid those kind of things then you may be really helping. assuming it's enforced now yeah in california they literally adopted texas's old laws on mail-in ballots in the 2016 and 17 legislative session and texas literally adopted california's old laws in 2017. california used to have decent laws on this where you had to be related to the individual or have power of attorney and uh, you couldn't get paid to, to touch them, to gather these ballots. California changed all of that in two years, in 2016 and 17, and literally adopted what Texas's rules were. Texas in 2017, and I was part of the, I testified on this in a special session, they literally adopted California's rules, saying you have to be related and you can't get paid. Yeah, I love that, I love that. So isn't that fascinating? And so what yes, happened is. <laughs> is in 2018, the Democrats blew the doors off of the Republicans in California had results far better than nationwide in, an, in the midterm election, but the Republican Party recovered. And in 2020 in California, they won back almost all of those seats. Now, the problem is it took an enormous amount of effort because the, that method of voting plays to Democrat strengths with the labor unions like the SEIU. Oh. But one of the ways the California Republican Party did it is they put drop boxes outside of mega churches and gun shows. And Amen. they were able to fight yeah. fire with yeah. fire. Yeah, love that, love that. Okay, uh, one other thing you wrote in Federalist, by the way, I love the Federalist. I do go to that in my show prep. I have a list of places I go, I love to go there. And this was just a great point. We don't have to do it in depth, but uh, on my show I've talked obviously a great deal about what occurred in Israel on October 7th. And you know, I think you know my husband's business partners and Israeli citizens, so we're hearing from them how things are going on. I mean, it's a horrible situation. And that you're, you had a great title, Hamas attack is a warning to America about the risks of our open border. Right. You could just end the article with your caption. I, I mean, but on a serious point, in America, you have, especially people on the left, when people point out our border's porous, you know, we, don't, we really basically have no control. Everyone comes in if they want to come in. Uh, we, our, our border basically has been abandoned by the left. And so, but people have got made great headway saying, well, oh, it's just because they're poor uh, immigrants looking for a new life. And they just want a job. And they just want to have America's abundance. And why are you so selfish? When really many people crossing the border are very dangerous people. Right. 
drug smugglers, human strugglers, sex traffickers, uh, Islamic terrorists, jihadists. Uh, I mean, the, the, and also the Chinese military-age men right. coming over the border. And, and that concept of when you see what happened in Israel, when they even had a, a border, we will go into all the suspicion of why the attack went on for so long before they reacted. But in any case, you have you can see this is the reality. What happens when those who hate you can come in your country? Sure. Yeah. So I do. I don't even know Texas public policy. Do you have a uh, a lineup of what you think needs to happen at the border? You yeah, we, we do have a team called the Secure and Sovereign Frontier uh, Initiative, uh, and I'm, I'm the one that leads that at the foundation. Uh, in fact, um, one of our guys testified before Congress uh, yesterday, uh, former Border Patrol agent, um, Ammon Blair, did a great job testifying before oh, the... I've uh, had him on my show. Yes, okay. yes, he did a great job. Uh, and so, yeah, there, there are all kinds of things we'd like to see done. Let me just focus, though, on two of the, the categories you mentioned. Uh, first of all, you have, of course, uh, individuals that are on the terror watch list. Uh, and these are the individuals that are the dumb terrorists that we actually caught, right? Uh, and so then <laughs> yeah. you wonder, gee, if they had, a, you know, if they were halfway decent at escape and evasion, they would be a gotaway, and we wouldn't even know if they were on the terror watch list. How many of yeah. those have managed to infiltrate our country? Yeah. Uh, and then what has been extremely troubling is beginning about 12 months ago, at the very beginning of 2023, you saw this significant shift in the nature of Chinese nationals coming across the border. You, it went from family units, that if the Border Patrol actually had time to interview them, which they increasingly don't have time, they wanted to tell the Border Patrol this, their story, where they were from, where they were going to, et cetera. Uh, now, beginning at the beginning of, of this last year, huge shift to military-age males who didn't want to talk to the Border Patrol and simply want to be allowed to be let go and go on their way into the interior of the United States. Now, the benign explanation is that Xi Jinping's massive takeover of the Chinese economy, putting everything under the thumb of the Chinese Communist Party, has caused a youth unemployment rate that we, that we think might be 20 to 50 percent. And so this may be enterprising young uh, people from China who desperately want to work and want to have a chance to, to better themselves. Or it could be espionage agents and, and commandos being pre-positioned for some future attack where they might attack our our uh, electrical transformers. They could assassinate key officials. Yep. We don't know. And that's the problem, is that we don't know. It is a problem, and I will say, on that subject of military-age men, Chinese, uh, fr from China, we should learn a little bit about what we were talking about earlier from the Confucius Institutes. The way China works is they're always thinking, how do we invade? How do we get into America? How do we spread our influence, our people in China? Uh, in, in America, and the idea that Chinese military-aged men pretty much uh, come here unfettered, and, and they spread across the country, and this leads me to, I know we can't get off on, on he who occupies the White House today, but maybe another time, but he who occupies the White House does not seem concerned. No. And this is what, uh, if, you, if you have no other issue that drives you to vote, if no other issue even matters to you, you ask yourself, how safe is America when the incumbent, the he who occupies the White <laughs> House, does not seem alarmed by 
the invasion of the southern border by Chinese military-aged men. We had a national security expert in the show weeks ago was talking about they, they believe they can tie at least 10,000 of them directly to the CCP. That's who they think. That, that's who is coming here. And yet they come here and, and we, we hear nothing, crickets, out of this administration. So if anything else drives your vote in the presidential year, it ought to be vote for someone who will actually agree to defend the border and actually begin to remove people, especially those a danger to America. Okay, I want to turn to it. So um, I mentioned earlier, I want to uh, tell our listeners. So um, you have the book we're going to talk about, Crisis of the House Never United. It's a novel that you wrote. You did the thing you mentioned earlier, the Texas model, Prosperity in the Lone Star State and Lessons for America. What is a great title, by the way. <laughs> we should spread Texas everywhere. Yes. Okay. And then you also wrote China Attacks. And were there one or two books of China? So, so I, I initially researched China Attacks and wrote a lot of it in 1998 because I was very concerned even then that people weren't taking seriously that China was going to be an enemy. Uh, it was published in 2000. It was picked up by a Taiwanese uh, publisher who uh, did a very faithful translation wow. into Chinese uh, it was a bestseller in Taiwan. I went back and did a book tour in that Taiwan. That is so cool. Uh, and it was even officially denounced by the spokesman of the pro-Beijing Unify Without Any Preconditions Party. Uh, we did a seminar in front of 250 members of the uh, Taiwanese legislature and staff. Uh, on the panel with me was the deputy of Taiwan's War College and two uh, federal legislators. And in the middle of our presentation, talking about the ideas in my book, the spokesperson for the pro-Beijing Unify Now party comes in and harangues me and the panel. Uh, and one of the, the, the lawmakers who knew English very well was translating into my ear. And the, the words that he was using were like the classic old school Cold War, you know, running dog, imperialist, American Yankee <laughs> lackey. And I'm like, this is awesome. Yes. I've never Are been, you getting this? Are yes, you this, this yeah. is great <laughs> stuff, right? And so then uh, in walking through Taipei, I, I just dropped in on a random bookstore, and there was my book all laid out, you know, and that was quite amazing <sighs> so to see great. it in Chinese, you know. And, and so one of the, the, the fun things about that book was what I did as an intel officer, I do war games, right? And so I... I got all the maps that I needed for Taiwan. I, I researched the order of battle for both Taiwan and for, for China. I looked at China's doctrine, Taiwan's doctrine, and I thought, okay, if I'm China, how do I take down Taiwan? What, what's it going to look like? Yeah. And because I'm not a sinologist and because there's not a huge market for that sort of book or paper, I knew that if I turned it into a more of a Tom Clancy novel, I would get more interest. Yeah, okay. So that's what I did. I also knew that in, in Taiwanese and Chinese society, they're very stratified by, by, by seniority, by age and rank. And so it's very difficult for young, innovative thinkers to ever say to a general, hey, general, have you thought about this? Or yeah. what if this happened? But as a foreigner, as a foreign barbarian, they could talk <laughs> about my yeah. crazy ideas in a non-threatening way. And so they could say, hey, what do you think about DeVore's crazy book and this and that and the other thing? The use of electromagnetic pulse bombs to disable the Taiwanese air defense oh network, for gosh, example, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. And what was fascinating was I went back to Taiwan four years later when I was uh, uh, an elected member of the California legislature. And I had a chance to meet with all of the cabinet officials over an eight day period. And my last set of meetings was with the staffers from the Mainland Affairs Council, which is the key council that focuses on the threat from mainland China. And I had brought a bunch of English language copies of my book to give away as gifts. And so I had the last two copies, I signed them, gave them away. 
And as we're leaving, a staffer comes running after me saying, Mr. DeVore, Mr. DeVore, I can't tell you how much this means to us. Your book is required reading in the, in the Mainland Affairs Council staff. You are a hero oh, to us. so great. And I'm thinking to myself, you guys are screwed because if I'm a hero to you, I'm just a state assemblyman from California. At the time, I was only a major, not a lieutenant colonel. I'm not even a general. I'm not a U.S. senator. And I'm, I'm one of your heroes? That's, that just shows how isolated they are. And they need better friends. I'm not high enough ranking to be. We know what yeah. else? It shows the power of truth. It shows the power of truth. When you write what's real and they're reading it and it resonates, right. it is, is amazing. And I think, you know, part of the whole Big American experiment is this, is we don't really defer to, well, leading the, the you know, our elected officials, they decide everything. We're just little peasants waiting to be told. Power of truth, speaking up, right. saying what's true, it matters. I think I didn't ever right. know the whole story. That's so, so cool. So you mentioned two. So what I've done is I have China Attacks 2024. And so what I've done is I've taken some elements of the old book and updated them and put in a whole bunch of new material. And I'm, I'm about 40% of the way through. I'm basically, I put it out on Kindle so that people can see it. And as I update it, they can get the update for free, right? And it's just a, a modest cost. But anyway, I've got it out there just to, it is a way for me to kind of uh, think out loud about how things have changed in the last 25 years, because obviously China's capability to invade Taiwan is far better oh. today than it was then. And sadly, America's potential aid to stand up for Taiwan is more in question now than right. it was in other points. It yep. Yeah, it, it, in very dangerous, just very dangerous. Yep. Okay, so you have a book, Crisis of the House Never United. It's a novel. Yes. It's kind of not true to life, isn't exactly right. Would you call it true to life, kind of, or is it what it could very, have been? Very easily could have happened that way, right? Because this novel grew out of my experience with the Claremont Institute's Lincoln Fellowship back in 2004. So I, I was one of a dozen people to be part of the Lincoln Fellowship team that year. Uh, and I learned in, during Lincoln Fellowship just how close the Constitution came to not being ratified. It was difficult. It was a hard fight. And you look at that and you think, oh my goodness. So even then, I outlined and researched and started writing the book. The problem was I had just won the primary to be the state assemblyman in my area. In California, it's a full-time job, right? And so- Unlike Texas. Yeah, right? unlike <laughs> Texas, right? Absolutely. And so I was sworn into office in, um, in early December. And so naturally, progress on the book halted because I was very busy now as a lawmaker representing almost half a million people. Uh, and so many, many years later, having gone to work for the Texas Public Policy Foundation, I would tell people about how close the Constitution came to not being ratified and how I had this idea for a book. And several of my colleagues are like, that's a fascinating idea. You ought to finish it. So I did. Okay, I want to talk about this, uh, two aspects of this and, and then any other ones you want to. But one is, and I, most people, well, at least when I went through school, people learned this. I don't know what kids learn these days. <laughs> Who knows? But we started our process of being freed, um, winning the revolution with these Articles of Confederation. Right. And that is the, was, a, was the first notion of how we're gonna be a country. And it was unwieldy and couldn't be, right. couldn't function, couldn't move forward as, as a nation. And just briefly tell, if you would, what, what was the problem with the Articles of Confederation? Well, there's a few uh, problems. First of all, the federal government didn't have any sort of innate taxing authority. They, they relied on the, essentially the generosity of the states, right? Uh, and it's very hard to have, for example, any sort of a navy or any sort of a, a central uh, uh, defense uh, mechanism. And so if you're fighting the British and you're trying to stay alive, that's one thing. 
uh, if now the pressure of war is gone and you're now trying to be a nation among nations and you have this uh, system of government that makes it extremely difficult to raise revenue or to pay your debts, wherein most things have to be unanimous, that if one state objects, you're not going to get something done, right? Yeah. And so what ended up happening is that it was so non-productive that a lot of delegates never even showed up to Congress. You didn't, didn't even have a quorum. Didn't, didn't even matter. have a quorum a lot of times. Yeah. The country was just kind of on autopilot. And so the fear was, and you see this in the Federalist Papers, where, where uh, Alexander Hamilton and I think it uh, could have been John Jay, both, uh, said that it, well, if we don't ratify this Constitution, here's what's going to happen, is that inevitably we will break up into two or three different commercial republics and those republics will seek alliances among the European powers, France, Britain, Spain, and the wars of the old world will once again return to the new world, and we will be fighting each other as proxies of these European yep. powers. That's the fate that awaits us if we don't ratify the Constitution. Yeah, I was gonna say, on the Constitution, and I know you have stressed, and, and many, people who love America to stress the importance of the Constitution. It took the Federalist Papers, which I love that thinking, people writing out trying to explain what difference would this make? How can we move ourselves right. forward to get us away from Articles of Confederation to the Constitution, which united, united us right. as a country, a, as a more centralized... Okay, but then another theme you have going in here, and I know we're going to... Um, I'm trying to see what time it is. Okay, we have six minutes. But very quickly, I'll tell you that uh, one theme I love because it's being replayed today is how much you want to have centralized power in Washington and conformity or in... in and uh, control um, versus those people are saying there's too much power in right. Washington. We want to pull it back to the states. Right. It, it's like the modern iteration of what right. you were writing about here. And those who are saying, I would count myself in that camp. You know, we need the federal government to be limited to the powers the Constitution said they have, which would be much less than they're doing now, and, and return more power to the states. But this was like, this was it was teased at the time of the of the founding, moving right. articles to the Constitution. So yeah, talk about that. Yeah, so there was concern from the anti-federalists that the Constitution would be too centralizing, uh, and of course, what's interesting about that is at the time the Senate was supposed to be the state's representatives. In fact, most senators were chosen by the state legislators, and it was only until the Seventeenth Amendment, of course, that that ended, and now we have direct election of senators. Uh, and it, it was always conceived of in our system of government, the federal system of government, that you'd have checks and balances not only within the federal government between the three branches, the legislative, the executive, and the judicial, but also the check and balance between the national government and the state governments. Yep. That was always intended. Now, in my book, what happens is um, the some of the anti-federalists are a little more cynical about their opposition to the Constitution because they have their own plans for what they would like to do okay. if the ratification, <clears throat> pardon me, of the Constitution fails. And so in, <clears throat> in my book, what you find is Aaron Burr exploits some of this chaos because in the book, the articles continue on uh, more or less functioning until George Washington dies in 1799, at which point the wheels kind of start to fall off the wagon because he was the last bit of national unifying glue yeah. that kind of held everything together. 
Love it. <coughs> uh, time for our, our listeners, a book that we are talking about, Chuck DeVore has authored, is called Crisis of the House Never United. <coughs> and you can get it, as you can see, it's on my Kindle here. I don't have a physical copy yet, but I'm going to get one because I love this exploration. It really explores ideas that we're all talking about today uh, in this country and trying to save this precious country. So I love that. And it's getting a little bit more attention recently, yeah. right? It, it, it is. And one of the reasons why is <coughs> one of the mechanisms that Aaron Burr uses to become elected as the national leader, at least of his regional grouping, right, is the national popular vote, which oh. is one of the things the Electoral College was designed to prevent. Yes. So back then, th who had the franchise was very limited. You had to have like 50 pounds worth of, of property, or if you were a merchant, you had to have a certain amount of wealth, right? And one of the things Aaron Burr did in real life to help uh, Thomas Jefferson win the 1800 election is the state of New York had that qualification, 50 pounds, etc. He was able to raise money through Tammany Hall and loan people money for the purpose of qualifying them to vote so that they took, they, they had an upset victory in New York for Jefferson against Adams' re-election. And they did it by doing that. And so in my book, Burr gets elected of this rump confederation of New York, Pennsylvania, yeah. New Jersey, and Delaware. And he, he does that by driving out the vote to essentially maximize the vote in New York using the same method in that election that he used in real life to help elect Thomas Jefferson in 1800. And so that's one of the reasons why the Electoral College is so important to prevent. Imagine if we have a national popular vote and imagine if California would then say, oh, this is great because we can determine who gets elected. We'll just have every single Californian vote, including those who are here illegally, and their votes will count the same as a Texas citizen who is properly <coughs> vetted and who we know is legally allowed to vote. That's one of the reasons why you don't want a national popular vote in America. Absolutely not. Yes. Another <coughs> whole topic for another day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great topic. So I do want to, for our listeners, again, we're speaking today, if you tune a little bit late, to Chuck DeVore. He is with Texas Public Policy Foundation, the premier state-based conservative think tank, or they say right of center uh, think tank uh, in this country, full of policy ideas and uh, exploring, you know, real life problems and how do you solve them? What's the right way to solve them with legislation and, and maybe the wrong way? So, uh, and Chuck DeVore is there. I know, I can't seem to memorize this. Chief National Initiatives Officer. That's a good title, <laughs> by the way, because then anything can get in there, but never national initiatives. But um, uh, you, I did not know much of your colorful history. Um, and also you're writing about China I, and, and all that you write about is just really exceptional. So thank you. I'm glad you had time to walk over across the street today to join us today here in Austin. Yeah, it was great to be with you. Yeah, well, thank you for coming. I'm going to quickly tell our listeners for our next Thursday show. So we had, I'm sure you might have noticed, we had the Iowa caucus this past Monday. I did a show on Tuesday about that. Uh, a week from today, so next Thursday, uh, our, we're going to be back in Dallas. My in-studio guest is going to be Mark Davis. And if you live any place in the state of Texas, you know his voice. He is a talk show host in Dallas. He has... Uh, I think it's 6.60 a.m. the answer. He's got the three-hour drive time. He's been a friend for years, and we've talked politics a lot. So we're just going to explore next week after the Iowa caucus and New Hampshire primary, you know, where are we as a nation? And, you know, I was talking to some different officials on the way here. You know, when you really process the fact that Donald Trump won 98 of 99 counties in Iowa, it's one measure. We'll see what New Hampshire does because New Hampshire permits crossover voting, so you can have a lot of Democrats piling in on, into the Republican vote. Uh, where we stand in the presidential race is Mark Davis. I could run through the other guests we have coming up. I think we're out of time. 
Cliff, thank you for tuning in to America Can We Talk. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk. You can go to the website, americacanwetalk.org. Also go to my website for my campaign for RNC National Committee Woman. I'm doing lots of speaking about that, lots of events. It's just, I can't even tell you how much fun, plus exciting. And that website is Debbie G for the digit for rnc.com debbie for rnc.com check it out it's one other avenue i have one way i can be more involved in this fight to save america i do this show to speak truth about america because america matters and i will talk to you next time Can we talk truth about America? Can you hear?